0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find out more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity.
1: And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers, lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years, journalists, and non-lawyers eager to improve their understanding
2: of national security issues. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased
0: updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law.
1: But never boring, unless you have a teeny-weeny little span of attention.
2: You know, some of our listeners probably have a shorter span of attention but they're not like those people who just watch Vimeo clips of some B-list actor gasping and clutching his chest over and over again sharing and resharing as if that image alone captures the zeitgeist our listeners go deep indeed during the podcast you can find links to the black
0: letter law and articles on today's topic at americanbar.org/natsecurity or in
2: the notes to this podcast in addition you can find links to other books learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website and in the notes to this cast. At the end of the podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org
0: or on Twitter at aba_natsec. We welcome your feedback.
2: All right, we're continuing our series on private national security law with a discussion about representing victims of terrorism and the challenges facing private practitioners who boldly take on the countries that sponsor terrorism. And our guest to discuss that today is Steve Pellick, a partner with the firm of Holland and Hart in Washington, D.C. Steve, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming.
3: Lisa, thanks for having me.
2: I have to say, in all honesty, we have talked to your colleagues, and they have described you as a terrific lawyer, a prince of a guy, and other very uh, positive terms. I hope that makes you blush.
3: I I don't know about a prince of a guy, but um, (laughs) thank you nonetheless.
2: All right, let's. uh, I like to give listeners some background because a lot of our listeners are young lawyers, and I think it's helpful for them to hear where people came from, where they started, what they have done to get to a point uh, where they're one of the world's leading experts on a topic such as yourself. So let me start. You went to Kalamazoo College. Uh, which I imagine is a small, is that a small college? Small in,
3: place in Kalamazoo.
2: Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's all right. All right. You are, you're also a smart guy. You made your way into the University of Michigan Law School. You clerked for a federal judge. And then uh, you went to work in New York for a law firm, which apparently you love but not that much because you became an assistant United States attorney in the District of Columbia for 18 years. And I imagine developed some of the expertise that you've now taken to make being in a firm a wonderful thing. Uh But you, frankly, investigated some of the most important and prosecuted some of the most important and complex cases in that U.S. Attorney's Office, which obviously has jurisdiction because of where it is in venue over some of the most significant cases, including obviously criminal cases, but national security, fraud, labor union embezzlement, public corruption, International terrorism cases, sanctions violations, and export controls. Um, and then you were the anti-terrorism coordinator for DC for many years between 2001 and 07. Then you became the deputy chief of the counter espionage section, and that's where you really became an expert in export controls and economic sanctions. Uh, then you went on to serve as the national coordinator for export controls and economic sanctions at DOJ through at the National Security Division. And uh, for those listeners who don't know what I mean when I see DOJ, there may be some of you, the Department of Justice. And there uh, you did something I think is timely and interesting. You coordinated counterproliferation efforts and the investigations of Chinese and Iranian smuggling of U.S. defense technology and finally, Holland and Hart was lucky enough to snag you in 2013.
3: Yeah, it's only been four plus years. It seems a lot longer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, but they're lucky to given this depth of expertise, I, I'm sure they feel extremely uh, fortunate to have you on board as a partner.
3: Well, Lisa, thank you very much for the introduction. Overly uh, overly kind. Um, had great, great colleagues in law enforcement at the U.S. Attorney's Office then. Department of Justice, as well as in the intelligence community and others that I got a chance to work to, and I, I uh, always tell folks it gave gives me working for the government gave me one great chance to prove my dad wrong. He always tell me that I would never find a job that I could get up and enjoy every morning, you know, heading out of the house. And for 24 years, 24 years plus, I did. I can honestly say I didn't go to work one morning, you know, not excited about going to work and not happy about going to work. I really, I never thought, you know, I'd rather do something else, not once. I mean... It, That's it is, really something. It really, yeah, I, I'm even sometimes amazed by it, but when you do it a few times, uh, it sticks with you and you love it because you're working for something larger than yourself.
1: I think a lot of people in national security law uh, share that sentiment, and so we're so excited to have you here and talk about a little bit of what you learned and what, what you did while you were practicing.
2: The reason that we called you here today, as I mentioned earlier on, is because the legal structure that gives the victims of terrorism any rights has changed, and in particular it's changed with respect to the ability to sue foreign governments that sponsor that terrorism.
1: I think it would be really helpful if you just started us off by um, helping to explain what the legal landscape looked like around September 11, 2001, before victims of international terrorism wanted to seek recourse in the court system in the United States. Uh, against foreign governments?
3: Yeah, Well, that's, uh, it's a great question, and it's, it's loaded. We could talk for days and days about it. But the short answer is that before 1996, it was very difficult for a private citizen to sue a, any foreign government, number one, but uh, least of all, any foreign government based on an act of international terrorism, and in particular, these are, we're referring most, most specifically to nations such as Iran, Sudan, Syria, formerly Iraq, North Korea, state sponsors of terrorism, designated by the federal government as a state sponsor of international terrorism. But in 1996, there was really a revolution, and Congress enacted uh, as part of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and it was really a larger piece of legislation, Um, enacted a provision that provided an exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunity uh, Statute for and against state sponsors of terror. And that really changed it. And since then, there have been well over uh, 100 final judgments against those state sponsors of terror, compensatory damages in excess of some $25 billion, the exclusive of interest, and punitive damages about the same amount and even more. you know, But in speaking to other lawyers or even non-lawyers about this, I think the, the most important thing to come away from that or that piece of information is that this development is not the work of private plaintiff's lawyers trying to pursue common law claims. It's really part of a larger strategic effort by the Congress of the United States to use, among many other different tools, private litigation to strike an element of deterrence into nations like Iran so that they think twice or three times before they blow up a bus in Israel through Hezbollah or before Sudan launches a terrorist attack. And so it's part of a larger, larger effort by Congress than just plaintiff's attorneys on their own acting to recover damages. I should say that there's a number of legal developments that we can talk about that occurred since 1996 and most importantly probably uh, was one in December of 2015 Congress enacted a statute that allowed for victims who are judgment creditors against state sponsors of terror to actually to recover damages and from it's paid through a special master and we can talk about it more as we go on but the under this program that was set up then Fines and forfeiture that are paid in response to sanctions violations go into a special fund, and then judgment creditors against Iran, Sudan, Syria, Cuba, are able to obtain their compensatory damages.
1: And this is the Justice for United States Victims of State Sponsored Terrorism Act.
3: It is. It is. And uh, Ken Feinberg, uh, of fame through being the Special Master to 9-11 and other Special Masters, he's the Special Master of the program. He's done a phenomenal job. The first round of payments, $1 billion, that's what it be, $1 billion were paid uh, this past February and March. And the next payment um, will either be in early part of next in the year or the early part of the year following. And right now the fund has close to $700 million in it already from fines and forfeitures.
1: And Feinberg was also my criminal law professor. So <laughs> another another thing that he can put on his resume. <laughs>
3: yeah. You know, he's a, um, he's a marvelous... Um, he's not a public servant. You know, he's a private lawyer. But like the plaintiff's lawyers, he serves a public role, right? He's serving the people. I mean, and that's something that I've learned that sort of as a prosecutor, right, and even my own self as a young, especially as a younger lawyer, uh, but sometimes you'd hear from colleagues not always, um, if you will, uh, sufficiently apprise of the value to our national security that private lawyers and, and others um, add in the legal process, but it's really true. I mean, the bulk of the work is actually done by private lawyers, truth be told.
0: What would make someone a judgment creditor for one of these particular settlements? What, what uh, exact criteria would they have to meet?
3: Yeah, a very good question. So in the Foreign Sovereign's Immunities Act, um, which is at 28 U.S.C. 1605, there's 1605, Big A now currently, um, there's a provision that says there's that a foreign nation that's been designated as a state sponsor of terror, and there's only currently, there's just three of them, uh, just currently Sudan and Syria and Iran. That's all that's currently in, in that status. That they have caused... Um, either uh, several different specific acts, either hostage taking, either an extrajudicial killing, either an aircraft um, sabotage or a, um, an act of torture, or they have materially supported one of those acts by somebody else against a U.S. person. And if they have, then, or against a U.S. government employee, if they have then that US government employee or US national can sue that foreign sovereign in the courts of the US otherwise a foreign sovereign would naturally under the statute there's an there's an absolute prohibition to immunity or immunity from uh, the jurisdiction of the US courts
2: you know one of the things that I like to do is I think sometimes we take for granted because we we sort of live and breathe this stuff Uh, That everybody knows the history, but I think one of the more interesting things that um, I've mentioned to you and we've talked about in preparation for this is the fact that there's a history with respect to the Iranian hostages that I thought might be interesting to share, particularly with some of our younger listeners who might not know about the Algiers Accords, about some of the things that were worked out. If you don't mind just briefly sharing that, I think that might be helpful.
3: Yeah, there's a lot, you know, there's sort of a lot of history with regard to specifically the state sponsors and how that exception developed but also even sovereign immunity. And I think maybe even take a, one more step back, if we could, just to give some context so people understand sort of, sort of where this comes from. And it also highlights that all that we're talking about with regard to state actions that injure private citizens of the United States, this is not something new. This is something that's been around since the very beginning of our republic. And back in um, during the Napoleonic times, uh, there was a, a citizen that owned a ship, and that ship, he took it on a mission from, uh, to deliver some goods from Baltimore to Spain. And Napoleon's forces seized it in an act of piracy and took it away. And a couple years later, that ship came into the port of Philadelphia. And when that citizen heard about it, he brought an attachment action, a replevin action, or then called libel action, to get that ship back. And litigation came out of it and Chief Justice Marshall in 1812 wrote about it and wrote about whether or not this private citizen could sue France to recover his ship and the bottom line of the opinion was no that in those circumstances where in that particular instance France had if you will re outfitted the ship so it was a warship then property of the French government, the U.S. government, the U.S. attorney, filed a statement of interest, then called a suggestion, in the court saying, we don't want this lawsuit to go forward any further. Okay. The court honored that and said that as a general matter, as a general matter, there is an implied consent to immunity. So in other words, the U.S. government has implicitly given consent to the foreign government to bring its property into the U.S. under a cover of of immunity. And from that opinion, it's called the Schooner Exchange opinion, Schooner Exchange versus McFadden, there was what developed a a sense of, not entirely, but close to it, absolute immunity for foreign sovereigns from lawsuits in the United States. And that's how the law developed, really, uh, well into uh, past World War II until 1950. And then the State Department issued, if you will, a directive saying that from thenceforth, in certain instances, largely in commercial transactions, but in a few others, sovereign immunity would not apply. So if a foreign state engaged in traditional normal commercial activities and wronged or harmed some individual, or they had agreed to waive their uh, sovereign immunity, for instance, when they issue bonds, or they had agreed to arbitration, right? then uh, the executive branch would always suggest to the judiciary not to honor immunity in those instances. And that's how the law stayed until 1976 when Congress finally acted and set down a set of rules in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in which then really there was regularity and consistency largely focused on commercial activity and following this State Department rule or letter called the Tate letter was written by the office of legal advisor for the state department.
1: And that makes a sort of sense right because if France is doing some commercial trading it doesn't really seem fair that they would be treated any differently than another, you know, commercial interest.
3: That's right. That's right. And that's what ultimately happened. If you actually read the Tate letter what you see is probably part of what was precipitating it and it's really stated explicitly although there's not an explicit reference to the USSR to the Soviet Union there is a reference to one of the strongest arguments being that many um, in state-controlled economies there are state-owned entities much more prevalent in the commercial world and so absolute immunity makes far less sense for just that exact reason. But I think getting to, and then, Lisa your question about, okay, then where did it go from then? And how did this, this notion of terrorism and harm to individuals by terrorist acts, how did that develop? And it really, sadly, it developed because there were more acts of, if you will, state terrorism against individuals in the United States and outside of the United States. And with regard to in the United States, there's actually a, an exception. There was an established exception in 1976 for torts. So in other words, if a foreign government in the U.S. committed a tort that injured a U.S. citizen, that foreign government was not immune. You know, you can think of the instance of a, um, of a mail truck, right, if a U.S. postal truck Uh, runs you down by the negligence or other ways of the postman. You can sue the federal government because the government, U.S. government, has waived its immunity, right? There is a a federal uh, tort claims act, right, that allows for that litigation. In the same way, the Foreign Sovereign's Immunities Act had a torts exception. And what happened not too far away from here, one of the earliest cases that occurred raising this was at Sheridan Circle here in Washington DC. The Chilean government assassinated a former uh, minister of its government or ambassador of its government by a gentleman by the name of Letelier. And he was driving to work one day with his aide, a fellow by the name of Moffat, and Mr. Moffat's wife, Ronnie Moffat, and a bomb was exploded under their car uh, by some agents of the Chilean government. And the bomb exploded, killed Mr. Letelier and Ronnie Moffat, And Mr. Moffat then brought suit against the government of Chile, the federal court judge, found that the Letelier uh, estate, along with Mr. Moffat, did have a cause of action and could sue the government of Chile and could recover under the Foreign Sovereign's Immunity Act. And those, those were opinions issued back in 1980. Uh, recovery was very difficult, but at least the the action could be brought and um, judgment was entered against uh, Chile.
2: So Chile didn't have a lot of assets that could be seized or bank accounts that could be attached at the time? Well,
3: they actually did, but there were limitations. The Second Circuit denied efforts to seize the Chilean national aircraft in New York. And this becomes relevant to our later story here a little bit. But there was a principle announced by the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court opinion in 1983, that said the courts should honor, should honor, in nearly all instances, uh, the distinction between a state-owned entity, an instrumentality, and the state itself. Now, in cases of abuse of corporate form, courts could um, see through that um, separate corporate identity but in most instances not. In the Second Circuit, in that instance, with regard to the Letelier estate and Mr. Moffitt, denied recovery against the planes that had been attached because there was a separate corporate entity. So it was difficult. And, of course, you're not allowed under various statutes and law to recover against diplomatic property. That was never, and that's never been taken out from the immunity uh, provisions.
2: Um, As a sort of separate concept, that of diplomatic immunity. It's very different from just the foreign sovereign. Exactly. And
3: that's an important point to remember because it really goes to the heart of why you have immunity in the first place. It really is to encourage those exchanges, right, that are necessary for civilized nations to get along. Because if you're not talking and not exchanging people, it's difficult to avoid conflict
1: It might be useful to just kind of recall for our our listeners what the theory that underlies uh, diplomatic immunity is, right, and why it's separate from sovereign immunity.
3: Yeah, well, diplomatic immunity is meant to be an absolute to protect ourselves as well as our foreign visitors here, right, because we, of course, uh, particularly we we all, each one of us in this room, we won the lottery because we were born in this uh, republic, and our nation has a natural and uh, national wealth that allows us to have embassies around the world. And at each of, one of those, obviously, every day there's hundreds of people lining up trying to visit or come to the United States. And if we did not honor the immunity of diplomats here in the U.S., we could not be assured that we could send our fellow citizens across the globe. Um, so it's, it's essential. And it's actually, if, um, if anybody's interested in sort of reading a little bit of the theory of that, I'd refer them to that Schooner's opinion that I had referenced in 1812. Chief Justice Marshall was talking about just those principles, just those exact principles.
2: Yeah, even more important as the nation was developing and young, I imagine.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, um, let's do this. I'd like to talk about some of the events that occurred and then talk about how they influenced the changes in the law. And I wonder if you could do that, sort of walk through them.
3: Yeah, leading up, so you have the Foreign Sovereign's Immunity Act, the statute, is basically in 1976. So Congress takes over this question. And the reason why they did was because the State Department, it was really a lack of rule of law. In other words, different sovereigns would get a different treatment depending on how well they could pressure or lobby the State Department to file a suggestion in federal court saying... France should be immune from this litigation involving uh, spoiled uh, avocados, right? So to avoid those inconsistencies, and the State Department acknowledged that. There's a great, you know, it's even in this Tate letter, sort of the suggestion that that could develop. But there's a couple great uh, articles during the course of years by Office of Legal Advisors um, acknowledging that difficulty. So Congress took it over with the statute. But then, that's 1976, a series of events really as the U.S. prominence in the Middle East, we became more prominent there, and a series of terrorism acts, beginning, if you will, of course, with the Iran hostage taking by the Iranian government of 52 diplomats for 444 days from uh, November 4, 1979, to 1981. And that was uh, the beginning. Of a, of a series of terrorist acts, which are too many to, uh, to list. But for instance, in October of 1983, uh, Iranian agents in Hezbollah uh, blew up the uh, facilities that our Marines were staying at. And 241 Marines and, and sailors and uh, several soldiers were murdered uh, there on their peacekeeping mission. They were staying in a facility at the International Airport. At the same day, within minutes, some 58 French um, soldiers were killed at the same time. Fast forward uh, several years, several of our embassies were bombed in Beirut. Um, a number of, of our very fine citizens um, were murdered, taken hostage, tortured. And then in 1988, Libya blew up, Pan Am uh, 103, as if, at, it, shortly after it had taken off. Again, 270 people were murdered. 259 on board and 11 on the ground. Those were part of the context that was ongoing at that time. Moving into the early 90s and the rise of bin Laden, there were a series of attacks and attempted attacks in New York City before 9-11. And of course, in February of 1993, there was a bombing of the World Trade Center. Um, and six were killed and some 1,000 were injured.
2: We might want to just quickly mention right here, one of the convicted people, just to make your point about the continuity, was actually the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who eventually did mastermind, at least if you believe him, right, uh, the 9-11 uh,
3: attacks. It's, it's absolutely true, and there was another plot that uh, was ongoing at the time in 1993 that was to occur just after that. And it was a conspiracy to bomb the U.N. headquarters, to bomb the FBI headquarters, to bomb the George Washington Bridge in New York City, the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, and to take hostage a number of U.S. officials, both elected officials, judges, and otherwise. And it was led uh, by a number of forces, a uh, fellow by the name of uh, Omar Rahman, who was colloquially known as the Blind Sheikh. And as part of that prosecution, as a matter of fact, the Southern District of New York named the government of Sudan, their office at the UN, as an unindicted co conspirator, right? And Sudan was designated, getting to our question about designations of supporters of international terrorism, in August of 1993. As a result of that and other actions, Sudan was designated as a state sponsor of terrorism.
2: And then let me just add for our listeners right here this is important because these countries that are designated are then under sanctions effectively. And we've we've done a couple of broadcasts where we talked about um, sanctions and the the work that private attorneys have to do in that space but just to connect that for uh, neophytes. And experience. that's a really
3: important point point. And, and actually you know I'm speaking here about this private litigation but most of my work as a private counsel right. is with regard to export controls and those sanctions as well as other defense, and, um, and it's important to remember those sanctions. When, it's, when a nation is designated as a state sponsor of terror under federal law, there's a couple things that happen. One, for instance, a U.S. person can't export what are called defense articles to that country. So in other words, anything from a 9mm pistol to an Abrams tank, right? Well, most of those countries, although some of them were and some of them did, but most of them didn't buy U.S. defense articles anyway, so it really didn't matter. But So the sanctions are much more extensive and can, depending on how they're written, prohibit all trade. But getting back to our story, these events built up, and there were a series of other ones, as I mentioned. A young woman in particular, a woman by the name of Elisa Flatow, or Flatow, she was a college student studying in in Israel, and she was killed on a bus um, by Iranian agents. Uh, Similarly, some American citizens who were part of what was called the Brothers to the Rescue, um, an effort to save people on rafts in international waters between the Keys and Cuba. And uh, the Cuban Air Force shot it down out of the sky and killed uh, four individuals. Well, wow,
2: I have to say, that's one I don't think a lot of people are going to remember that that happened.
3: No, they haven't. It, it, it's sad, too. It, you know, I mean, people can differ about their opinions about the sanctions and severity of them and how to carry them out. But to say that they had no basis or they were overwrought or they were exaggerated, uh, it, it really has no place in fact. You know, Facts are somewhat, which uh, a wiser man than I once said, somewhat stubborn things. So,
1: so, so we had a, a bunch of, a series of these attacks and the law was deficient. Can you just tell us what steps Congress yeah. took in order to... So as a result
3: of all those in April of 1996, Congress said, enough is enough. We're going to create an exception to this rule of immunity for designated state sponsors of terror.
1: Because what had happened was people, these victims of terror attacks, were bringing these suits in court and they were being dismissed. Absolutely. There was no basis for for the suit.
3: To bypass the sovereign immunity. And there were some novel um, uh, theories, and really, um, if you will, although her theory was not adopted directly into the statute, I would uh, recommend reading a dissent in that exact context by Patricia Wald, who was a long time uh, a great uh, uh, appellate judge in the DC Circuit here and who I had uh, the great pleasure of arguing in front of on a couple of occasions. And she dissented in a case called Prinz versus Germany. And Mr. Prinz had been an American citizen who had been taken along with a lot of other Jewish uh, men and women, and he was a teenager at the time, by Nazi Germany and imprisoned and put into slave labor, both outside Auschwitz and Dachau, and um, later brought a suit to recover his wages, just to recover his wages, and wow. and based it on a theory that, amongst others, that Germany had so acted against the norms of international law that it had implicitly given up and waived its right to sovereign immunity. And the majority, reading the law, I think the majority probably got it right on a strict legal terms, and they're fine judges in the majority. But um, Judge Wald, she wrote a dissent which really laid the groundwork, if you will, going back to the Schooner's opinion by Chief Justice Marshall to say the whole notion of sovereign immunity is by grace. In other words, the U.S. government gives it by grace and can take it away. And the purpose of it is to allow for the exchange of foreign relations to on-go in a civilized world. But if nations are not acting according to Jus uh, Kogan's peremptory norms of international law and things such as slavery, genocide, uh, torture... Um, if nations aren't honoring those basic rules, then there aren't any relations ongoing, and um, the government should find a waiver of immunity. So it's that's kind of, what was enacted into the law, in effect.
1: It's kind of interesting because we, as a as a world, we sort of arrived at that conclusion in the criminal context, you know, after World War II, but it took until the 90s, at least, for it to catch up in the United States that it should also, these kinds of Egregious crime should be the basis for civil reform. It, it really is, and
3: that's exactly what Congress um, instituted in uh, 28 U.S.C. 1605A7. And it allowed for if a foreign government, either through some act of torture, extrajudicial killing, aircraft sabotage, hostage taking, or material support or resources for such an act, um, if it either um, assisted those or caused those or it's, they were committed by one of its officials, its agents, or employees within the scope of their agency or their office, and they were a designated state sponsor of terror, then a, a U.S. person could bring litigation in federal court. And the act, though, was, it was very narrowly tailored, and it was based on as you know, those concepts. It's not any act of terrorism. It's carefully limited, for instance, hostage taking, the definition is taken from an international convention, right? Torture taken from an international convention, right? Um, and the same thing for aircraft sabotage. So in other words, the statute, in effect, was taking up, taking up the position that Judge Wald had spoken about in her dissent, that there are certain acts by certain actors, even in the sovereign realm, that should not be honored for immunity and that's what the statute did and 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 then it allowed for that litigation and that litigation um, has started up and and grown quite substantially what's been interesting over the last couple of years you probably just to guess at your next question is like sort of what happened after 1996 well actually what happened was the plaintiffs that brought these actions ran into a lot of roadblocks the judiciary was just very reluctant because, as you would suspect, Iran didn't show up, right? And Sudan they didn't come in. The Ayatollah
2: didn't come in and sit down. They didn't subject the themselves to, to deposition. I'd like to see that. <laughs>
3: absolutely, absolutely. I mean, could you imagine depositions or document requests that were truly honored, right? In in any event, so the cases went forward usually on default. But the law is such that they're not an actual default. The default standard is the same as if you were going to seek a default against the U.S. government. And you've got to show, prove your case still to the satisfaction of a federal judge. And so what usually happens is there's a bench trial. So, for instance, when our embassies were blown up in August of 1998 in East Africa and Nairobi and in Tanzania, the, by
2: Al-Qaeda.
3: Uh, by, by Al-Qaeda, sponsored by, principally by Sudan. Um, after that, uh, litigation was brought by the initially by the U.S. employees, U.S. nationals. And then later, actually in 2008, the law was expanded to allow for U.S. government employees, even if they weren't U.S. citizens. So in other words, at our embassy in Nairobi, as you'd well expect, really the majority of employees right, are Kenyans. And they suffered the most. And they were allowed, because of changes in the law in 2008, to bring an action as well. So in any event, that case was lodged and went before Judge Bates, and he had a three-day bench trial. And he heard witnesses, fact witnesses, expert witnesses, received documents, received expert opinions, and then um, uh, took his time, as a careful judge would do, and issued a liability opinion about nine, ten months later. right? And then appointed seven special masters, over a course of three years to take testimony and to receive evidence to determine damages. So it's not as if this litigation is just by happenstance or by plaintiff's attorneys not well versed in the law or in the pursuit of justice in in response to terrorist acts, just to the contrary. And then three years later, after issuing his liability opinion, Judge Bates, in that particular instance in 2014, issued damages opinions and entered final judgment. Um, that was
2: quite an undertaking. The amount of evidence and the amount of testimony collected to get to that point exactly was really something.
3: And more than 500 uh, plaintiffs because you have approximately about 200 U.S. government employees, right? And then their family members. Uh, it can bring a, a common law action and, and recover. And that's um, what happened in those instances. I should add that um, in all those instances, they're really carefully uh, crafted opinions. Most of the litigation, not all, but most of it's in DC, and the judges have almost established some some formulas, some formulas, uh, in terms of hostage taking. For instance, if somebody's held hostage, uh, because it's difficult, right, to say how much is being held hostage worth right and obviously if there's added injuries that's added but as a general matter they use a benchmark of ten thousand dollars a day uh, in a hostage instance like that
0: So we are going to close this episode here. Please come back to hear part two of our interview with Steve Pelleck and learn more about FSIA and JASTA and some more modern developments in this area and maybe even get a little career advice as well.
2: So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff, how much you're going to need vitamin D all day if you do that, Or maybe you'd prefer to get sunlight and help the families of victims of terrorism or work on other national security law issues where you won't need supplements. Or if you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history.
1: And you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life
2: from a distance. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next conference. Because listening to a podcast, though, it's informative, but social networking isn't really networking. You need to show up at one of our conferences or lunches or, bre- or breakfasts. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious na- serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk. At least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it's the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, which is available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank
1: you for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec.